Well, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, this is where we'll be this morning as we continue in our journey through the epistle of the Ephesians from the Apostle Paul. Last week, we came to what's really the end of one argument that the Apostle Paul is making for the Christian walk before he picks up a new argument in verse 7. He ended this previous argument with a warning saying, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. If you recall, the things here to which Paul is referring are these vices, these characteristics that he's been naming that are so common among unbelievers, immorality and impurity, greediness and so forth and so on. We spoke of the fact that the world is deceived, and being deceived themselves, they deceive others. And that deception comes in many forms, but ultimately, the deception is anything that's contrary to God's Word. The deception is anything that would set itself against the truth of God. Last week, we looked all the way back to Genesis, where Eve was first deceived, thinking about the warning from Paul to not ourselves be deceived, we saw that the, the serpent questioned God's facts. He questioned God's motives. He twisted God's words, and he deceived Eve into willful disobedience. From there, we looked at the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, and we saw that Satan is really just sort of a one-trick pony. He used the exact same tactic on Jesus as he did with Eve, He questioned what God had said, and he twisted God's words. But this time, Jesus did what man could not. He resisted the devil entirely. He resisted temptation, and he overcame Satan's temptation in the wilderness. And we paid close attention to the fact that both Satan and Jesus quoted Scripture. Satan quoted Scripture in order to tempt Jesus twisting and distorting God's Word, taking it out of context. What's particularly notable, however, is that God, Jesus, God in the flesh, responded to Satan, overcame the temptation of Satan by quoting texts of Scripture in context. Now, the fact that Jesus, the God-man, uses written Scripture to overcome Satan's temptation should make us pause and consider. If Jesus overcame Satan's attempted deception with God's written Word, how important must it be for us to know God's written Word? Indeed, that was was one of the very points we made last week, that if we are to avoid being deceived, we must know the truth. We must know God's Word because Satan knows God's Word. And so we must know it, and we must know it in its context as it's written. How many times does the world attempt to use our own Scriptures, which, by the way, they hate twisting and distorting out of context to deceive those who believe? It happens quite frequently. That's been Satan's tactic, at least one of them all along. 
Last week, we also made three observations from looking at those passages. One was that we must know God's Word. The second observation was that Satan constantly questions the authenticity and the authority of God's Word. He said to Eve, you surely will not die, right? And number three, that Satan questions God's motives. He says to Eve, he says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, he wanted Eve to believe that God was keeping what was good and what was best from them. Clearly, we understand that was not true. It was a lie. It was deception. But these are the very same deceptions we have in the world today. You've heard things like, well, God didn't really say XYZ is sin. God's not really going to pour out His wrath on people. He's a loving God. God loves you just the way you are. He'd never want you to change who you are. Same kinds of lies that were birthed in the garden. It's all the same deception that ultimately leads to the warning at the end of verse 6, where Paul says that these sinful ways are the reason the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It's a sober warning in Ephesians 5, 6, because we see so clearly that it is indeed God that punishes the wicked. And friends, He doesn't punish the sin. He punishes the sinner. We see that clearly, yet so many people claim that their God would never send anyone to hell. To which I rarely argue anymore, because in reality, if that's their belief, then the problem is their God is a figment of their own imagination. Because the God of the Bible does indeed send people to hell. He does indeed punish the wicked. He must, because a just God, a righteous God, must punish the wicked. Or by definition, He wouldn't be just, and He wouldn't be righteous. We read from Matthew, we read from Matthew briefly last week. I want to remind you of it as we come near our verse for this morning. Matthew 10, 24. This is Jesus Himself speaking. He says, "...a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master." It is enough for the disciple that he becomes like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house, that's Christ, Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Dear friends, God indeed sends men to hell. And though some hate that idea, they do so because they fail really to understand man's predicament. Man is not essentially good. And Paul makes this very clear in chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, walking according to the prince of the power of the air, living in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh, and so on. A just God sends people to hell because He cannot overlook sin. 
God sends people to hell, and because He does, we can trust that He is, in fact, a righteous judge. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way. But consider this. What would we call a judge who simply turns a blind eye to the criminal, letting him go free without any penalty or acknowledgement? What would we call that kind of judge? We would call him crooked, unrighteous, evil, right? Because God is good, because He's just, because He's righteous, He has to penalize evil. So this is what men who hate the idea of God sending anyone to hell fail to understand that man is evil and because God is just, there must be a penalty paid. In fact, you couldn't trust a God who didn't penalize evil. So it's because of this evil, it's because of this sinful way of living that Paul says that they who live in this way are children of wrath, and that is God's wrath as children of disobedience. Now, we come to our verses for this morning, verses 7 and 8, but if you'll allow me, let me read from 6 to 14 just to give you the context. Chapter 5, 6 through 14, it says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul begins our passage here with the word, Therefore, So he's about to say something that's dependent upon the statement he's just made. He's just told us to not be deceived, right? In verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. And now he says, therefore, he's just spoken about those living in debaucherous lifestyles who live as unbelievers do and that they will be subjects of God's wrath. And now he says, therefore, or in other words, because this is true, do not be partakers with them. In other words, do not find yourselves joined to those who will incur the wrath of God. I don't know why anyone would want to be a part of a group that is going to be under the wrath of God, but Paul says, do not become like them. The word partake here is an interesting word. It doesn't just mean engaging with them in a sin. That's not what the word means. It doesn't simply just mean that you sin. It actually means one who is a partner or an accomplice. It's an identification by association. So Paul really could have just said, do not become a child of wrath yourself. That's really what partaker means here. It means your identification is one with those 
who are children of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Do not be joined to them. The pronoun here, them, isn't referring to the sin. Paul isn't merely saying don't sin. He's saying don't become associated with them as sinners. Just kind of breaking down some of the grammar here. He's saying don't become associated with them as unbelievers, and specifically as sons of disobedience. They who live in sin are sons of disobedience, and because of this, they will be the recipients of God's wrath, and therefore do not become one of them. That's the message. These are the ones who are going to fall under God's wrath, and dear Christian, you who know Christ, don't become one with them. Don't become partakers with them. Now, as a short side here, I want to bring attention to something that many seem to misunderstand in the church today, and that's this notion of God doing everything for us, and that we really have nothing ourselves to do. Of course, our salvation is grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but our sanctification, our walking in holiness is not monergistic, it's synergistic. Now, I'm going to explain that. This is what Paul has been teaching all along. So what does that mean? Well, monergism is the idea that God works alone, independently of the human will, to accomplish a spiritual work. The term is most often and rightly applied to our regeneration, our salvation. In other words, God alone saves men. Not by your good works, not by my good works. I don't contribute to my own salvation. In any way, God alone accomplishes that. And He does so for His glory and so that we would not be able to boast in any works. But then some have the idea that beyond our salvation, our sanctification, that's our holy living, right, is also monergistic, which I would say is patently false. This is the idea that God has done everything regarding your holiness, your sanctification once you're saved. Therefore, there's really nothing left for you to do. I mean, this is a commonly taught doctrine. But you see, the problem with that view is that it contradicts what the Apostle Paul has been telling us all along and here again in our passage. Well, how does it contradict? Well, because the Apostle gives a command. And who are these commands to? Well, they're to believers, right? These are things that you and I have to obey, have to do. He says, do not be partakers with them. This isn't something that God does. This is something that you must do. Our sanctification is synergistic. That was the other term that I used. The walking out of holiness in our daily lives is synergistic. That is just simply to say there are joint actions by two or more agents. You work and God works in you concerning our day-to-day holiness. We have to obey the Scriptures, right? That's something that we do, just as Paul's been telling us all along, right? He told us to be imitators of God. He says to walk in love. He says clearly there's participation in the Christian life. We have to obey, right? God doesn't obey for us. We do that. Now, Through His Holy Spirit, in ways we cannot fully understand, 
God does work through our obedience to bring about that sanctification. As we continue on faithfully in His Word. So God alone saves. God alone regenerates the heart. But man must be obedient to the Scriptures. All the while, it's the Holy Spirit who brings the increase in holiness. So you see the synergism there. You obey, and the Holy Spirit uses and works in you and through that obedience for your holiness. Okay? If we believe salvation is synergistic, then in reality we've added works to the gospel, which is an abominable thing to do. And yet, if we believe that sanctification is monergistic, then we've given man a free pass to accuse God of not making them do what he commanded them to do. Now, there's some mystery in all of that, but all to say here we have a command that we are meant to obey, and we can't just simply step back and assume God is going to do all of this to it, all of this to us for us. Paul says, do not partake with those who are the objects of God's wrath. So I say all of that because Paul's basic form here, and has been throughout the book, is to give us the truth and then command us to walk in it. And that's something that you and I have to set our minds to do. Paul is calling us to be holy. He's calling us to walk as Christ walked, to love as Christ loves, and here, to never partake in the sinful ways of the unbeliever. Now, of course... We can't hope to even be obedient without the help of God's Holy Spirit. But certainly we can't sit in our living rooms or just merely show up for church on Sunday and never pick up our Bible or never be faithful in any other way and then expect that God's just going to conform us to the image of Christ. It doesn't work that way. We participate in our active obedience and God gives the growth. So I say all of that because Paul is now providing us why we are not to be partakers. He says, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And so we have both a command, something that we must do, and we have a state of being. Something that God alone has done. He tells us to walk as children of light, but then he says that you are now light in the Lord. There's a work of God, and then there's an obedience necessary on our part. Now, he says you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. I want to just nail down this passage a little bit. He's saying that you were something, And now you're something different. I mean, this is important. This is the work of God in the life of a believer. He's starting with your past, right? He says you were. So exactly what were you? Formerly darkness. I mean, we have here a great contrast between the believer and the unbeliever. Again, Paul's been doing this for an entire two chapters now. We've seen it throughout the epistle. In chapter 4, Paul tells us that we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, and he describes the Christian as one who is to grow up in all aspects into him. 
And then he says, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles. So we see the contrast between the one who's a believer and the one who is unsaved, the Gentile. He describes the unbeliever in chapter 4 as those who have their minds darkened, who have their hearts hardened and having given themselves over to sensuality and greediness. And then in verse 20, he says, but you did not learn Christ this way. Here's another contrast between the believer and the unbeliever. There is a stark difference. The beginning of chapter 5, Paul says, be imitators of children as beloved, sorry, be imitators of God as beloved children. And then he lists the unbeliever's lifestyle and says that they will have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And so now he comes to really the head of all of this argument. The most distinct comparison, the light and the dark. There's no greater contrast that can be given than that which exists between light and darkness. And so Paul starts with what the believer was before salvation. You were formerly darkness. Now, there are a couple things to notice here grammatically in the passage. The first thing to notice is that this is in past tense. The believer needs to know who they are now. And if you really are going to understand who you are in Christ now, you also need to understand who you were before Christ. This is past tense. That's important because it means that you are no longer darkness if you know the Lord. Now, it's interesting that Paul does something grammatically unnecessary here. He includes the word formerly. You wouldn't typically say you were formerly. You would just say you were. Why does he do this? I mean, Paul's doing this because he's putting an emphasis on the fact that your darkness is behind you as a Christian. Paul means to make a statement that every Christian should rejoice at the hearing your darkness is is in your past. If you are a believer, you are no longer darkness. That's gone. It's done away with. The moment God regenerated your heart and adopted you as a child of the Most High, all darkness was banished. Vanquished, sorry. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, he says that you were dead in your sins, trespasses and sin that you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Paul, speaking to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators or idolaters or effeminate. He goes on to list a variety of sinful lifestyles, and then he comes to the end and he says, such were some of you. In other words, you no longer are these things. There's no such thing, dear believer, as a homosexual Christian. You are either darkness or light. Paul says, if you're a believer, you were some of these things which means you no longer are. If Christ saved you, darkness is your past. It's not your present, and it's certainly not your future. And so the first thing to notice in the text is that Paul describes the darkness of an unbeliever as being a thing of the past. 
I point that out because in reality, there are believers who do indeed struggle with the sins of their past. And the reality is that those sins do not define you as a Christian. That's not to say that you may not carry some godly remorse over that sin. That may be a consequence, but you are totally forgiven. And that is not a defining characteristic of who you are if you are a believer. You are no longer darkness, but you are light. Now, the second thing to observe here is that there's no pronoun by which the verb is modified. That's really important. I want to explain that to you. It doesn't say that you were in or of darkness. And that's important because the passage demonstrates then that this is a state of being. It's not as though you were in darkness before you came to Christ, but in fact you were darkness. That's the state of every man without Christ. Not merely in darkness, that's to say man is not simply a victim of the darkness, but he is darkness without Christ. His entire being is darkness. He's a contributor to darkness. Paul says his mind is dark. He's told us that his heart is dark, and that is all because he is darkness. Or to use Paul's phrase, he is a partner of the darkness. At once, someone will surely say, well, what about the man who is a moral man? If we have many of those in our day, not like it used to be, I think moralism is being overcome by licentiousness and paganism, but what about the man who seems to be moral? What about my neighbor who's a quote-unquote good man? He just doesn't know Christ. He obeys the laws and he doesn't do this or that. What about him? Well, the answer is exactly the same. He is darkness. It's God's common grace that not all men are as bad as they could be. But all men without Christ are dead in their trespasses and sins. Even philanthropic men who are without Christ live, according to the Scriptures, according to the lust of their minds and flesh, doing what's right in their own eyes and living always doing with godless motivations. I think too many look at the moral man today and say he's a good man. But Christ tells us that there are no good men. But I would also say to you, how is the man who shakes his fist at God, declaring that he's the master of his own fate and that he can earn whatever good he thinks he deserves and God has nothing to do with it, how is that a good man? No, he might do some good by way of common graces, but he is darkness without the light of Christ. He's not a victim In fact, he's the one who hates light. Even the good man, quote-unquote, so-called, without Christ, hates the light. The moral man without Christ hates the light. So how can we call such a man good? You know, it's interesting. Everyone knows John 3.16, right? Where Jesus says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Everyone knows that verse. Many may know the next verse, which says, For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but 
that the world might be saved through him. We hear that one, right? When people want to say, see, God doesn't judge. The problem is that they stop reading there. Because that's not all it says. This is Jesus speaking, by the way, and if we keep reading, we read the stark reality of the condition of all men. Jesus continues in that John 3.16 through 21, and in verses 19 and 21, if you just keep reading, Jesus says this, He says, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Even the so-called moral man hates the light and loves the darkness. In Matthew 6, 33, sorry, Matthew 6, 20, uh, 23, sorry, says the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of what? Light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be filled with what? Darkness. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? The believer's righteousness, the unbeliever's lawlessness, but then it goes on. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? The man without Christ is, throughout Scripture, characterized by darkness. That same darkness, Paul says, characterized, past tense, you. But now Paul is saying that all of that is gone. And there's something new. There's something different. He says, but now... That's a wonderful phrase. We saw that in, chapter, in chapters above, right? When he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You get down to verse 4 and he says, but God. Now he's talking about the fact that you were darkness. You were men and women of darkness. And then he says, but now. And so he's about to give us a drastic change. Now you are light in the Lord. Have you ever thought about the fact that you as a believer are in fact light? You're no longer what you were, and what you are now is something different than what you were in the past. Your being has been changed into something entirely different and opposite. The two observations that we made earlier in the first part concerning the grammar of The previous phrase is true here too. The apostle says that we are. This is present tense. In fact, it's present tense and it's continual, right? This is the believer's present and future spiritual reality. If you know Christ, you are light. You're not what you were. You're not not darkness any longer. You're now light. The second observation we made earlier is also true. The apostle Paul doesn't say that you're in light or that you are of light, but he actually says that you are light. This is what characterizes the Christian. The Christian is a saint, a holy one. The Christian is a child of God. The Christian is light in Christ. Scripture often uses 
light to symbolize God and holiness and truth. Let me just read you a few passages in Scripture. In the Old Testament, we find light in passages such as Isaiah 42, 6. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, referring future to Christ. Isaiah 49, 6. He says, it's too small a thing that you be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore and preserve ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of earth. Listen to Isaiah 60, 1 through 3. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the people's. But the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And then in the New Testament, we have Christ in John 8, 12, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John, describing the God of light in 1 John 1, 5 through 7, says this. He says, this is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Paul, when he was still Saul of Tarsus, if you'll recall, before he encounters God in the book of Acts, he's persecuting the church, right? He's dragging Christians off or having them drug off to be persecuted and killed. And then we come to Acts 26, where Saul is about to get a rude awakening, a good awakening. 14 to 18, listen. And when Saul, or when he, that Saul, had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand to your feet, for this purpose I have appeared to you, to, point, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light." and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. This is the glorious reality of the Christian. You were darkness, now you are light. You were from the dominion of Satan, now you're in the dominion of God. Jesus says to His disciples in John 12, 35 through 36, he says, For a little while the light is among you. He's speaking of himself. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. 1 Peter 2, 9, 
but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of the darkness into His marvelous light. The light in Scripture we find primarily refers to revelations and the character of God. God creates light in Genesis. He's clothed in light in the Psalms. Light dwells within Him in Isaiah and Habakkuk. And while children of wrath, children of Satan, are referred to as children of darkness, the Christian is a child of light and is indeed light in Christ. Paul's been making the case all along that believers are not simply just to be different than unbelievers. That's not the case Paul's been making these last several weeks. The case he's making is that believers are, in fact, different than unbelievers. Not that you just merely look different, but that you are, in fact, different. And because you are different, our lives should look different. The way the unbeliever, sorry, the way the believer walks really has little to do with just mustering up the discipline to follow a list of rules. It instead has everything to do with who you are in Christ. You obey because you are a child of light. We saw that the believer walks in good works in chapter 2. That's not because they're trying to earn favor with God. It's because they have favor with God. It's because they're different than the world. Paul tells the Christian to walk in a manner worthy because he's different than the world. And then Paul tells the Christian to walk in love. Why? Because the Christian is different than the world. And now Paul tells us to walk as children of the light. Why? Because the Christian is different than the world. Because you are not like the world. You're not part of the world. You're not partakers with them in the world. You've been washed. You've been clean. You've been made new. You've been made light. You were darkness. But now you are light. And Paul is imploring us to walk in a way that reflects the fact that you are sons and daughters of light. Let's pray.